Book Two, Chapter Eight of the History of Sir Richard Calmady. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand. The History of Sir Richard Calmady by Lucas Mallet. Book Two: The Breaking of Dreams. Chapter Eight: Telling Incidentally of a Broken-Down Postboy and a country fair the brockhurst male phaeton waited in the shade of the three large sycamores before apple yard's shop at farley row a groom stood stiff and straight at the horses heads while upon the high driving seat a trifle excited by the suddenness of his elevation sat richard he held the reins in his right hand and stretched his left to get the cramp out of his fingers his arms ached there was no question about it he had never driven a pair before and the horses needed a lot of driving for the wind was gusty piling up heavy masses of black purple rain cloud in the southeast it made the horses skittish and unsteady and dicky found it was just all he could do to hold them so that chiffney's reiterated admonition keep em well in hand sir richard had not been wholly easy to obey from out the open shop door came mingled odor of new leather and of horse clothing within mr chiffney delivered himself of certain orders while appleyard a small fair man thin of nose a spot of violent color on either cheekbone skipped before him goat-like in a fury of complacent intelligence for it was not every day so notable a personage as the brockhurst trainer crossed his threshold to josiah appleyard indeed not to mention his two apprentices stretching eyes and ears from the back shop to catch any chance word of mr chiffney's conversation it appeared as though the gods very really condescended to visit the habitations of men while mrs appleyard peeping from behind the wire blind of the parlor had as she afterwards repeatedly declared felt her insides turn right over when she saw the carriage draw up the conversation was prolonged and low-toned for the order was of a peculiar and confidential character demanding much explanation on the one part much application on the other it was an order in short wholly flattering to the self-esteem of the saddler both as tribute to his social discretion and his technical skill thus did josiah skip goat-like being glad meanwhile richard calmady waited without resting his aching arms gazing down the wide dusty street his senses lulled by the flutter of the sycamore leaves overhead the said street offered but small matter of interest for farley row is one of those dead alive little towns on the borders of the forest land across which progress even at the time in question eighteen fifty six had written ichabod in capital letters during the early years of the century some sixty odd coaches plying upon the london and portsmouth road would stop to change horses at the white lion in the course of each twenty-four hours that was the golden age of the row horns twanged heavy wheels rumbled steaming teams were led away with drooping heads into the spacious inn-yard and fresh horses stepped out cheerily to take their place between the traces the next stage across spendle flats was known as a risky one legends of claude duval and his fellow highwaymen still haunt the woods and moors that top the long hill going northward and the passengers by those sixty coaches were wont to recover themselves from terrors escaped or fortify themselves against terrors to come by plentiful libations at the bar of the handsome red brick inn 
the house did a roaring trade but now the traffic upon the great road had assumed a local and altogether undemonstrative character the coaches had fallen into lumber the spanking teams had each and all made their squalid last journey to the knackers and the once famous gentlemen of the road had long lain at rest in mother earth's lap sleeping there none the less peacefully because the necks of many of them had suffered a nasty rick from the hangman's rope and because the hard-trodden pavement of the prison yard covered them the fine stables of the white lion stood tenantless now from year's end to year's end rats scampered and bats squeaked in unlovely ardors of courtship about the ranges of empty stalls and cobweb-hung rafters yet one ghost from out the golden age haunted the place still a lean withered bandy-legged little stick of a man arrayed in frayed and tarnished splendor of sky-blue waist jacket silver lace and jack-boots of which the soles and upper leathers threatened speedy and final divorce in all weathers this bit of human wreckage jackie deeds by name might be seen wandering aimlessly about the vacant yard or seated upon the bench beside the portico of the silent bow-windowed inn pulling at a too often empty clay pipe and spitting automatically over richard tender-hearted as yet towards all creatures whom nature or fortune had treated cavalierly the decrepit post-boy exercised a fascination one day when driving through the row with mary cathcart he had succeeded in establishing relations with jackie deeds through the medium of a half-crown and now as he waited beneath the rustling sycamores it was with a sensation of quick yet half-shy pleasure that he saw the disreputable figure lurch out of the inn-yard stand for a minute shading eyes with hand while making observations and then hobble across the street touching the peak of a battered black velvet cap as it advanced be ye come to zee the show sir the old man coughed out peering with dim blear eyes up into the boy's fresh face no we've come about something from apple yards i-i didn't know there was a show oh bain't there though sir richard i tell ye there'll be a prime sight of a show there be monkeys down town and dorgs what dances on their inder legs and girt iron cages chock full o wild beasties by what they tells me dicky feeling anxiously in his pockets for some coin of sufficient size to be worthy of mr deeds's acceptance ejaculated involuntarily oh there are i'd give anything to see them sixpence a do most ere they are shows i expect the wild beasties ud run into a shilling maybe the old post-boy made a joyless creaking sound bearing but slightest affinity to laughter but you'd see your way round more'n a shilling sir richard a terrible rich young gentleman by what they tells me something a trifle malicious obtained in this attempt at jocosity causing dicky to bend down rather hastily over the wheel and thrust his offering into the crumpled shaky hands there he said oh it's nothing i'm so pleased you don't mind where do you say this show is gore mighty blessy sir the old man whimpered with a change of tone taint every day poor old jacky deeds runs across a rich young gentleman as'll give him a wolf a crown times is bad mortal bad couldn't be much wuss i'm so sorry richard answered he felt apologetic as though in some manner responsible for the decay of the coaching system and his companion's fallen estate mortal bad couldn't be no wuss i'm very sorry but about the show where is it please the boy asked again a little anxious to change the subject oh that there show taint much of show neither by what they tells me mr deeds spoke with sudden irritability 
uplifted by the possession of a half-crown he became contemptuous of the present jealous of the past when such coin was more plentiful with him not much of a show he repeated the young uns'll crack up most anything as comes along but that's their stupidness never zeed nothing better law bless ye this ain't a patch on the shows i've a zeen in my day cock-fightings and fellows with a lot of money laid on em by the gentry too a poundin of each other till there weren't an inch above the belt of em as weren't bloody and the irish giant and dwarf sat over from france they tell me most frenchies is made that way old bony hisself wasn't much a one to look at and i can mind a calf with two heads uh, to eat with both mouths at once and all the food would go down into the same belly and a man with no arms never had none by what they used to tell me ah richard exclaimed quickly no never had none and yet i'd play the drum with his toes and fire off a horse pistol lord you would a laughed to have seen him he made fine sport for the folks he did jacky deeds had recovered his good humour he peered up into the boy's face again maliciously and broke into a cheerless creaking merriment gore mighty as his jokes too he said i'm thinking by the curious made creatures he sends along sometimes chiffney richard called imperatively chiffney are you nearly ready we ought to get home there's a storm coming up well we shall get that matter of the saddle done right enough sir richard the trainer remarked presently as the carriage bowled up the street don't be too free with the whip sir steady steady there mind the donkey cart bear away to the right don't let em get above themselves excuse me sir richard he leaned forward and laid both hands quietly on the reins look here sir he said i think you better let henry lead the horses past all this variety business the end of the street was reached on either hand small red or white houses trend away in a broken line along the edge of a flat grass common backed by plantations of pollarded oak trees in the foreground fringing the broad roadway were booths tents and vans and the staring colors of the last raw reds and yellows the blue smoke beating down from their little stove-pipe chimneys the dirty white of tent flaps and awnings stood out harshly in a flare of stormy sunlight against the solid green of the oaks and uprolling masses of black-purple cloud here indeed was the show but to richard calmady's eyes it lacked disappointingly in attraction his nerves were somewhat aquiver all the coarse detail all the unlovely foundations of the business of pleasure were rather distressingly obvious to his sight a merry-go-round was in full activity wooden horses and most unseaworthy boats describing a jerky circle to the squeaking of tin whistles and purposeless thrumpings of a drum close by a crop-eared lurcher tied beneath one of the vans dragged choking at his chain and barked himself frantic under the stones and teasing of a knot of idle boys a half-tipsy slut of a woman threatened a child who in soiled tights and spangles crouched against the muddy hind-wheel of a wagon tears dribbling down his cheeks his arm raised to ward off the impending blow from the menagerie an amorphous huddle of gray tents ranged behind a flight of wooden steps leading up to an open gallery hung with advertisements of the many attractions within came the hideous laughter of a hyena and the sullen roar of a lion weary of the rows of stolid english faces staring daily hourly between the bars of his foul and narrow cage heart-sick with longing for sight of the open starlit heaven and the white-domed muslim tombs amid the prickly desert thickets and plains of clean hot sand on the edge of the encampment horses grazed sorry beasts for the most part galled broken-kneed and spavined weary and heart-sick as the captive lion 
but weary not from idleness as he, weary from heavy loads and hard traveling and scant provender, sick of collar and whip and reiterated curses. About the tents and booths, across the grass and along the roadway, loitered a sad-colored country crowd. Even to the children it took its pleasure slowly and silently, save in the case of a hulking young carter in a smock-frock, who, being pretty far gone in liquor, alternately shouted bawdy songs and offered invitation to the company generally to come and have its head punched. Such were the pictures that impressed themselves upon Richard's brain as Henry let the dancing carriage horses up the road. And it must be owned that from this first sight of life, as the common populations live it, his soul revolted. Delicately nurtured, finely bred, his sensibility accentuated by the prickings of that thorn in the flesh which was so intimate a part of his otherwise noble heritage, the grossness and brutality of much which most boys of his age have already learnt to take for granted, affected him to the point of loathing. And more especially did he loathe the last picture presented to him on the outskirts of the common. At the door of a gaudily painted van, somewhat apart from the rest, stood a strapping lass, tambourine in one hand, tin mug for the holding of pennies in the other. She wore a black velvet bodice, rusty with age, and a blue silk skirt of doubtful cleanliness, looped up over a widely distended scarlet petticoat. Rows of amber beads encircled her brown throat. She laughed and leered, bold-eyed and coarsely alluring, at a couple of sheepish country lads on the green below. She called to them, pointing over her shoulder with the tin cup, to the signboard of her show. At the painting on that board, Richard Calmady gave one glance. His lips grew thin and his face white. He jerked at the reins, causing the horses to start and swerve. Was it possible that, as old Jackie Deeds said, God Almighty had his jokes too, jokes at the expense of his own creation? That in cynical abuse of human impotence as a wanton pastime, he sent human beings forth into the world thus ludicrously defective? The thought was unformulated. It amounted hardly to a thought indeed, was but a blind terror of insecurity, which coursing through the boy's mind filled him with agonized and angry pity towards all disgraced fellow beings, all enslaved and captive beasts. Dimly he recognized his kinship to all such. Meanwhile, the carriage bowled along the smooth road and up the long hill, bordered by fir and beech plantations, which leads to Spendle Flats. And there, in the open, the storm came down in rolling thunder and lashing rain. Tall, shifting white columns chased each other madly across the bronze expanse of the moorland. Chiffney, mindful of his charge, hurried Dicky into a greatcoat, buttoned it carefully round him, offered to drive, almost insisted on doing so. But the boy refused curtly. He welcomed the stinging rain, the swirling wind, the swift glare of lightning, the ache and strain of holding the pulling horses. The violence of it all heated his blood as with the stern passion of battle. And under the influence of that passion, his humor had changed from agonized pity to a fierce determination of conquest. He would fight. He would come through. He would win. He would slay dragons. Prometheus-like, he would defy the gods. Again, his thought was unformulated, little more than the push of young, untamed energy impatient of opposition. But that he could face this wild mood of nature and control and guide these high-mettled, headstrong horses gave him coolness and self-confidence. It yielded him assurance that there was, after all, an immensity of distance between himself and all caged, outworn creatures, and that the horrible example of deformity upon the brazen-faced girl's showboard had really nothing to do with him. Dickie's last humor was less noble than his first, it is to be feared. 
but in all healthy natures, in all those in whom the love of beauty is keen, there must be in youth strong repudiation of the brotherhood of suffering. Time will teach a finer and deeper lesson to those that have faith and courage to receive it. Yet it is well the young should defy sorrow, hate suffering, gallantly, however hopelessly, fight. And the warlike instinct remained by Dickie all that evening. He was determined to assert himself, to measure his power, to obtain. While Winter was helping him dress for dinner, he gave orders that his chair should be placed at the bottom of the table. But the colonel sits there, Sir Richard. Dickie's face did not give in the least. He has sat there, he answered rather shortly. But I have spoken to her ladyship, and in future he will sit by her. I'll go down early, Winter. I prefer being in my place when the others come in. It must be added that Ormiston accepted his deposition in the best possible spirit, patting the boy on the shoulder as he passed him. Quite right, old chap. I like to see you there. Claim your own and keep it. At which a lump rose in Dickie's throat, nearly causing him to choke over his first spoonful of soup. But Mary Cathcart, whose kind eyes saw most things, smiled first upon her lover and then upon him, and began talking to him of horses, as one sportsman to another. And so Dickie speedily recovered himself and grew eager, playing host very prettily at his own table. He demanded to sit up prayers, moreover, and took his place in the dead Richard Calmady's stall nearest the altar rails on the left. Next to him was Dr. Knott, who had come in unexpectedly just before dinner. He had the boy a little on his mind, and while contemptuous of his own weakness in the matter, wanted badly to know just how he was. Lady Calmady had begged him to stay. He could be excellent company when he pleased. He had laid aside his roughness of manner and been excellent company tonight. Next him was Ormiston, while the seats immediately below were occupied by the men-servants, Winter at their head. Opposite to Richard, across the chapel, sat Lady Calmady. The fair summer moonlight streaming in through the east window spread a network of fairy jewels upon her stately, grey-clad figure and beautiful head. Beside her was Mary Cathcart, then came a range of dark, vacant stalls and below these was a long line of women servants ranging from Denny in rustling black silk and Clara, alert and pretty, though a trifle tearful, through many grades and orders down to the little scullery maid fresh from the keeper's cottage on the Warren, homesick and half-scared by the grand gentlemen and ladies in evening dress, by the strange lovely figures in the stained-glass windows, by the great gold cross and flowers, by the rich altar cloth and costly hangings, but half seen in the conflicting light of the moonbeams and quivering candles. John Knott was impressed by the scene, too, though hardly on the same lines as the little scullery maid. He had long ago passed the doors of orthodoxy and dogma. Christian church and heathen temple, could he have had the interesting experience of entering the latter, were alike to him. The attitude and office of the priest, the same in every age and under every form of religion, filled him with cynical scorn. Yet he had to own there was something inexpressibly touching in the nightly gathering together of this great household, gentle and simple, and in this bowing before the source of the impenetrable mystery which surrounds and encloses the so curiously urgent and vivid consciousness of the individual. He had to own, too, that there was something inexpressibly touching in the tones of Julius March's voice as he read of the young Galilean prophet going about and doing good, simple and gracious record of human tenderness and pity, upon which, in the course of centuries, the colossal fabric of the modern Christianity, Catholic and Protestant, has been built up. And great multitudes came to him, read Julius, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, 
insomuch that the multitude marvelled when they saw the dumb speak, and the maimed to be whole, and the lame to walk. How simple it all sounded in that sweet old-world story, and yet how lamentably, in striving to accomplish just these same things, his own far-reaching science failed. The maimed to be whole, the lame to walk. Involuntarily, he looked round at the boy beside him. Richard leaned back in his stall, tired with the long day and its varying emotions. His eyes were half-closed, and his profile showed pale as wax against the background of dark woodwork. His eyebrows were drawn into a slight frown, and his face bore a peculiar expression of reticence. Once he glanced up at the reader, as though on a sudden a pleasant thought occurred to him. But the movement was a passing one. He leaned back in his stall again and folded his arms, with a movement of quiet pride, almost of contempt. Later that night, as her custom was, Catherine opened the door of Richard's room softly, and entering bent over his bed in the warm dimness to give him a last look before going to rest herself. Tonight Dickie was awake. He put his arms round her coaxingly. "'Stay a little, mummy darling,' he said. "'I am not a bit sleepy. I want to talk.' Catherine sat down on the edge of the bed. All the mass of her hair was unbound and fell in a cloud about her to the waist. Richard, leaning on one elbow, gathered it together, held, and kissed it. He was possessed by the sense of his mother's great beauty. She seemed so magnificently far removed from all that is coarse, spoiled, or degraded. She seemed so superb, so exquisite a personage. So he gazed at her, kissed her hair, and gently touched her arms, where the open sleeves of her white dressing gown left them bare, in reverential ecstasy. Catherine became almost perplexed. "'My dearest, what is it?' she asked at last. "'Oh, it's only that you're so perfect, mother,' he said. "'You make me feel so safe somehow. "'I'm never afraid when you are there.' "'Afraid of what?' she asked. "'A hope came upon her that he had grown nervous of writing "'and wanted her to help him to retire gracefully from the matter. "'But his next words undeceived her. "'He threw himself back against the pillow "'and clasped his hands under his head. "'That's just it,' he said. "'I don't know exactly what I am afraid of, and yet I do get awfully scared at times. I suppose, mother, if one's in a good position, the position we're in, you know, nobody can ill-use one very much. Lady Calmady's eyes blazed with indignation. Ill-use you? Who has ever dared to hint at, to dream of such a thing, dear Richard? Oh, no one, no one. Only I can't help wondering about things, you know, and some, some people do get most awfully ill-used. I can't help seeing that. Catherine paused before answering. The boy did not look at her. She spoke with quiet conviction, her eyes gazing out into the dimness of the room. I know, she said almost reluctantly, and perhaps it is as well you should know it too, though it is sad knowledge. People are not always very considerate of one another, but ill usage cannot touch you, my dearest. You are saved by love, by position, by wealth. You are sure of that, mother? Sure? Of course I am sure, darling, she answered, yet even while speaking her heart sank. Richard remained silent for a space. Then he said with certain hesitancy, Mother, tell me, is it true then that I am rich? Quite true, Dick. But sometimes people lose their money. Catherine smiled. Your money is not kept in a stocking, dearest. I don't suppose it is, the boy said, turning towards her. But don't banks break? Yes, banks break, but a good many broken banks would not affect you. It is too long a story to tell you now, Dickie, but your income is very safe. 
it would almost need a revolution to ruin you. You are rich now, and I am able to save considerable sums for you yearly. It's, it's awfully good of you to take so much trouble for me, mother, he interrupted, stroking her bare arm again delicately. To Catherine, his half-shy endearments were the most delicious thing in life, so delicious that at moments she could hardly endure them. They made her heart too full. Eight years hence, when you come of age and I give account of my stewardship, you will be very rich, she said. Richard lay quite still, his eyes again fixed on the dimness. That's, that's good news, he said at last, drawing a long breath. I saw things today, mother, while we were driving. It was nobody's fault. There was a fair with a menagerie and shows at Farley Row. I couldn't help seeing. Don't ask me about it, mother. I'd rather forget if I can. Only it made me understand that it is safer for anyone, well, anyone like me, don't you know, to be rich. Richard sat up, flung his arms around her, and kissed her with sudden passion. Beautiful mother, honey sweet mother, he cried, you've told me just everything I wanted to know. I won't be afraid any more. Then he added, in a charming little tone of authority, now you mustn't stay here any longer. You must be tired. You must go to bed and go to sleep. End of chapter 2, book 8